Hi, my name is Siobhan Braybrook, and I work at UCLA. And my lab studies how cell walls affect growth in organisms, both plants and non-plants. So in the first talk in this series, I gave an introduction to cell walls, their biochemistry and structure, and how that might affect cell growth and shape. In the second part of the series, if you're interested, we talk about the particular properties within plant cell walls that might regulate directional cell expansion. And in this talk, what I'm going to talk about is something very new and quite different, which is understanding how the cell walls of seaweeds might obey somewhat similar mechanical principles to their completely unrelated um, analog plants. So let's go ahead and talk about cell wall mechanics and growth beyond plants. Cell walls exist throughout the tree of life. Even though we often associate them, as mentioned, with plants, we might also then be familiar with them in, say, bacteria. But actually, brown algae, which are the seaweeds that we most common, commonly think of, this, for example, here is my favorite seaweed, fucus, growing on the beach. They're not plants. They're completely independently evolved, but they also have cell walls. And the most closely related thing that you might know about would be oomycetes. And so oomycetes are in the same family as brown algae, and they're an incredible pathogen, both to humans and plants. So understanding cell walls in these different contexts can actually be incredibly valuable. But it's not just plants and seaweeds that have cell walls, so that we're going to focus on the seaweeds for this talk. As I mentioned, bacteria also have cell walls. So this is an example of a cyanobacterial bloom. And what you can see is they're really just taking over. That's a whole lot of cell wall material there. But that is a unicellular organism, whereas up top we have plants and algae, seaweeds, which are giving us multicellular body forms. Now, you may be surprised to find out that animals also have cell walls. Not all animals. In fact, there's a very specialized group called the tunicates. And here you can see a beautiful example of a tunicate. They're marine animals. And so they build a very stiff and strong cell wall matrix outside their bodies that likely is responsible for helping them deal with the saline environment and the excessive waving and moving of water. So what do all these things have in common? Well, they have cell walls, but those cell walls are giving them a very particular function that has been necessary for their survival and evolution. So is there any similarity among the cell walls across these kingdoms? Yes to a certain extent there is. So what I'm going to do is highlight for you those families within which we can find a polysaccharide-based cell wall. This is a cell wall made mostly of sugars that exists outside the cell membrane. And so it essentially is embedding every single cell in this polysaccharide matrix. So if we take that tree from before, you can see every group here that's now been highlighted in brown, some or all of the species found within that group actually will have polysaccharide-based walls. Even animals, the tunicates. So what exactly do I mean when I talk about a polysaccharide cell wall? And what do I mean when I'm specifically talking about seaweeds or brown algae, which are the topic of this particular section? Well, what we're talking about really is a polysaccharide matrix, again, that's encasing the cell wall. And what that made, is made up of is actually structurally important for the function of the wall, but also influences the growth of the organism. So in general, what we think of the polysaccharide matrix as comprising are cellulose-based fibers. This is also true in plants. A gel matrix, which in plants is pectin, and you can learn more about that in parts one and two. 
But in algae and seaweeds, what we're talking about is alginate there. A little bit more of that to come. There's also some crosslinks within the cell wall that sort of help really knit it together. But in the end, what we've learned from plants is that there's kind of two properties of the cell wall that can help control the direction that a cell will expand in, but also how quickly it's going to do that. And so we focused on this in part two. And if you're interested, you can go there to learn a little bit more about the science. But the gist of it is that material anisotropy, which is really driven by the fiber orientation of cellulose fibers in the wall, can help dictate the direction within which a cell will expand. But the elasticity and stiffness of the gel matrix might be the thing that's actually controlling how quickly, how fast a cell will actually grow and expand. So we're going to focus today on what's happening in seaweeds, and we're specifically going to look at this gel matrix and its properties with, as they relate to wall elasticity and cell expansion. So why do we want to work on seaweeds? They're beautiful. That's our number one reason. No. <laughs> They're also incredibly useful, which we'll get to towards the end of the talk. But here is my favorite seaweed. This is the rockweed known as fucus, which is one of the species that we work on in the lab. But you might also be incredibly familiar with giant kelps. And so giant kelps generate a huge amount of biomass very quickly over time, and they're incredibly important for the marine ecosystem. So while they're actually kind of complicated study organisms, because they're really hard to grow in a lab, they're actually fundamental to the ecology of our planet. So it's important that we try and learn about how they grow and develop, so that we can help protect our ecological environments, but also potentially capitalize and help utilize them to create better resources for our planet. So if we look at the seaweed cell wall, there is cellulose there, but it's actually not very much. In terms of percent content, it's less than 10%. It's a really, really low amount of material that comes from cellulose. In fact, most of the cell wall is made up of this gel matrix. And so as we mentioned, this is mostly alginate. And I'm going to describe that chemical structure for you in a minute. If you think about it, for a cell wall to be made of gel, but still be pretty strong, the way that seaweeds have done this is by making really thick cell walls. So you have more material, it's stronger, without having necessarily stronger components. It also might serve as a really good buffer against them and anything external, like the seawater that they live in. So we have this gel matrix. It's mostly made of alginate. Well, what is alginate? Alginate is a very simple polysaccharide. It comes out of the inside of the cell into the cell wall, mostly in the form of manuronic acid, which here is orange. And so manuronic acid is put together in a chain, as you can see here. And what happens is that there are enzymes within the algal cell wall that will actually convert manuronic acid to its epimer. It's an epimerase. Here, the purple triangles are actually gluuronic acid. And this switching essentially creates little pockets within which calcium ions can be bound, which here are represented by these gray diamonds. And so if you have more manuronic acid, you'll have less calcium crosslink. You should be a more fluid gel. But the more gluuronic acid you have, the more you should be able to bind calcium and become more rigid. This is not dissimilar to what we know about how pectin crosslinks, again, with calcium. And you can learn more about that in parts one and part two. But essentially, what we have, potentially, is a mechanism by which the biochemistry of the cell wall can regulate the mechanical properties of that gel matrix, and potentially, then, the growth of the cell. OK. So 
Here is our study system, in fact, the Fucus embryo. And the reason that we like using embryogenesis in seaweeds is that it occurs completely outside of the parent body. So you don't have to try and look inside a womb or inside a seed in order to see the developing embryo. It happens freely in the sea, and you can essentially start it at any point. So we can synchronize their growth, analyze how they grow, and ask questions about them. So this is a really classic developmental system that we've recently been reviving in order to ask some more functional structural questions about cell wall biology. So what you can see here is a three-day-old fucus embryo. And it's essentially made of two parts. The sort of brown part up at the top here is the thallus, and that's going to go on to make most of the body of the seaweed that we would see. And this tail here is a multicellular tissue called a rhizoid, and that serves to anchor the seaweed onto the rocks. So what's interesting is that these two parts of the embryo actually display really different growth dynamics over time. So what we know from our work is that you start off with an egg here on the left, you have a fertilization event, and then you get a first asymmetric division. That's going to give you the cells that will become the thallus and the cells that will become the rhizoid. And what's interesting is that within the thallus, we get divisions without cell expansion, which is actually quite rare in walled organisms. Often you expand before you divide. Whereas in the rhizoid, we have really, really fast cell expansion. So we end up having these two different types of behavior in one system. We have no expansion in cell division here in the thallus, and we have fast cell expansion occurring in the rhizoid. And it allows us to ask questions about cell mechanics contrastingly in the very same organism. So the next thing we wanted to ask was whether or not slow-growing versus fast-growing regions of an embryo might actually show differential cell wall mechanics. And what we knew in plants is that the areas that grew a bit slower tended to have stiffer cell walls, and areas that were expanding faster tended to have less stiff cell walls or more elastic cell walls. So in order to ask this in the fucus embryo, what we did is we applied atomic force microscopy to developing embryos. And essentially, what AFM allows us to do is push along certain regions of the sample and ask whether or not it takes more force to deform one area than another. So you could imagine, perhaps, that where the cell wall was stiffer and harder to deform under turgor pressure and grow, that might appear stiffer to the AFM as well. And so, in fact, what we saw, and here I'm showing you one example graphically of a fucus embryo after an AFM stiffness scan, is that stiffness, which is here in this heat map, was highest in the slowly expanding but actively dividing thallus, whereas the stiffness was much lower, meaning it was more deformable when we were looking at the cell walls of the rhizoid tissue. And you can see that here graphically represented over many, many samples. So this really was a trend that we were seeing. And it fit very well with what we saw in plants, where the stiffer the matrix was, the slower growing the cells would be. So we wanted to ask whether or not these would change in time and whether that would correlate interestingly with the growth behavior of the samples. So what I'm showing you here now are 24-hour embryos, 72-hour embryos, which are the three days ones we just saw before, but also at 240 hours. And you can see the development of this embryo is progressing over time. And what's interesting is, at this point, at 240 hours, the thallus is now starting to expand. So here, now, we've switched to a divisive growth to a more cell-expansive growth. And so perhaps we might expect to see the cell wall getting softer over time in the thallus region. So in fact, that is what we did see. We saw that in the very beginning of growth, at 24 hours, when actually the cell wall is just developing, 
you had a relatively soft tissue, a low stiffness. It then went quite high when you, the cells were dividing but not expanding, and then dropped again when those cells began to expand as well. And so this correlated very nicely with our hypothesis about cell wall stiffness correlating with cell expansion. Well, what about the rhizoid? So if you remember, the rhizoid at, at 72 hours here, which is three days, was softer than the thallus was. But how does it compare to the rhizoid over time? That's what's shown here in this graph. So what we have now is plots of the rhizoid stiffness over time, again, at those three time points. And what you can see is, again, at 24 hours, just after fertilization, that cell wall's developing, were relatively soft. And our stiffness goes up, but I hope you can see by the order of magnitude difference in these graphs, it's still nowhere near as stiff as the thallus ever is. And then what's interesting is that it sort of drops again. And this is actually when that rhizoid is going to start growing a little bit faster and even start branching out to really put this hold fast down to grab onto the rocks. So we think we see not only spatially along a given embryo at one time, but also in time, correlations between cell wall stiffness and cell elongation behavior. Now, as I mentioned before, seaweeds aren't really that well studied, particularly with their molecular biology. And so while it's interesting to know that there are changes in cell wall stiffness, we might be interested in understanding how the gene expression might change in these organisms. So in order to look at this, we did an RNA-seq profiling experiment to look at how gene expression changed over time in embryo development. And this was particularly challenging because the fucus genome is not sequence. So in fact, we are building one currently. And what it means is that when you have a bunch of RNAs that you've got in an RNA-seq experiment, you have to actually build that transcriptome de novo. You don't have a genome or an annotation to tell you what anything is, which is both challenging but incredibly exciting because we're finding all kinds of cool new things. But let's focus for a minute on the cell wall. So what we did is we created a de novo annotated transcriptome of embryo development in fucus covering these time stages. So you'll see from our previous slide the 24-hour, 3-day, and 240-hour fertilization samples, but we also included a time just after fertilization before any divisions had taken place. And using this, we were able to predict around 25,000 genes just being expressed during embryo development which is roughly similar to the kind of number of genes that we see, for example, in the model plant Arabidopsis thaliana. So we think there's probably roughly 25,000 genes in fucus, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but once we have a full genome sequence that's well annotated, we'll be better able to answer that question. However, what we can do now is ask whether or not any of these 25,000 genes that we saw expressed in the embryos might be related to cell wall biosynthesis and potentially then cell wall mechanics, and cell growth. So if you remember, one of the components of the algal cell wall, even though it's not major, was cellulose. And what was interesting for us is when we predictedly annotated cellulose synthase enzymes, we could see that their transcript, and there's 12 of them, we could see that their transcript showed interesting developmental expression patterns. So here I'm showing you a heat map. And what this heat map tells you is what their log fold change difference is from sort of the average expression. So if they're going up in one sample or they're going down in another sample in terms of expression. And so what I hope you can see is that there are a group of genes that are expressed early during embryo development. And you can see those here. 
So where these orange colors are sort of higher, these are the first two stages of embryo development that we profiled, and now we have a group that are peaking much later. And so it would be interesting to delve in further to ask whether or not this differential expression is important to the different types of growth modes or mechanics that we saw. We can also look, then, at alginate. And remember, from plants, we knew that the pectin gel matrix was important, and so we might be interested in whether the alginate gel matrix could be important for regulating growth in seaweeds. So this is actually a very, very large gene family that we could identify in the fucus embryo transcriptome. We actually have 32 predicted enzymes that could convert manuronic acid in orange to gluuronic acid in purple. And if you remember, that conversion allows the gluuronic acid blocks to actually calcium crosslink and rigidify, in principle, the cell wall. So we had 32 of these. And what we could see from that is, again, interesting developmental expression patterns. And the heat map here is the same as before. And what I'm showing you are three time points, 7, 24, and 72 hours, which is also where we looked at the mechanics before. And what you could see is you have some early expressed genes, you have some genes that are expressed more at a higher level late in development. And so again, we have this developmental pattern, which could be correlating to these different types of growth modes and growth patterns. But it's really, really hard to do functional gene analysis in seaweeds, where there are no methods for transformation, and there's almost non-existent methods for generating mutants. So instead, we took a more biochemical approach. And what we decided to do was ask whether or not we could see differences in alginate biochemistry in the embryos over time. So what I'm going to show you are three-day-old embryos, again, that 72-hour time point, and we have three antibodies that we can apply to our embryo samples. One, BAM10, which stands for brown algal monoclonal antibody 10, binds primarily to calcium cross-linked gluuronic acid blocks. BAM7 binds to mixed gluuronic manuronic manuronic acid blocks, and BAM6 is mostly going to bind where there's a lot of manuronic acid. And so you could imagine that this should be maybe more fluid pectin than where BAM10 is. And we wanted to know whether or not that would correlate well with the cell wall stiffness measurements we had made. So BAM10, which is our sort of stiffer antibody, at least predicted to be where the stiffer alginate is, you can see coming up nice and high, both in the image here, but also in the graph, very high in the thallus. That was that stiffer, slow-growing region. So this made some sense for us. What was interesting is that BAM7, this mixed MG blocks, manuronic gluuronic blocks, was kind of high all, sort of all across the embryo. And we actually saw very little signal for BAM6, which would be pure manuronic acid blocks. And so what this tells us is that probably most of the alginate in the developing embryo is going to be in a mixed manuronic gluuronic acid configuration, at least as far as we can tell with these antibodies. But really, it's this stiffer presence where BAM10 labels that is really correlating well with where we have stiffer cell walls. Okay, this was pretty interesting for us because we'd seen something similar in plants. When the cell wall was stiffer for our AFM, we had more calcium-capable binding pectin, and we're seeing the same thing here, a different polysaccharide, but again, this calcium-binding pectin, or this calcium-binding gelation mechanism. And so even though these are independently related organisms, they've developed their walls differently, they've developed multicellularity differently, they're still somehow using their gel matrix in a similar way to potentially control cell expansion behavior. So 
What we can recap from this, then, is that right now we can say that alginate biochemistry may regulate cell expansion magnitude in seaweeds. And our evidence for that is that we have this gradient of stiffness where the thallus is stiffer than the rhizoid. That correlates nicely with where we have stiffer alginate antibodies binding. But also, we have this softer alginate in the areas that are growing a little bit faster. However, again, it's still just a correlation, and this is a hypothesis, because what we haven't been able to do is, for example, knock out any of those 32 manuron and C5 epimerases and ask whether or not it changes the way that the embryo can grow and develop over time. But that's where we're hoping to go next. So what we really think, then, is that we've got this epimerase activity early in development that might be related to how the cell wall stiffness changes, and that might be related to this difference in growth, expanding rhizoid versus dividing thallus. So why should we care about seaweeds and their growth? I mean, obviously, they're cool. But why should you care about them? Well, first of all, I've got some diagrams of seaweeds, again, some giant kelps and my beautiful little fucus. But what you may not know is that a lot of products that we use every day come from seaweeds. Not just the food that you eat, but also fertilizers that the plants we grow might use. For example, here, animal feed. This is actually an incredibly nutritious uh, supplement for animals. And in fact, if you include 10% seaweed into animal feed diet for cows, it reduces their methane extract by 50%. So it has a big mitigating effect, potentially, for climate change. Down here, we also have medications and cosmetics, where alginate is actually an incredibly important component as well. So they're valuable products, they're really useful, but is that the only reason you should care about them? Remember, they're also incredibly important ecologically. They create a, a very particular and special environment for a lot of marine aquatic life. And so understanding how they grow might help us better steward our environment while still trying to benefit from it. There's one more um, component that I will tell you about, and that's not only can seaweeds mitigate the methane produced by cows through feed, but they themselves are actually potentially incredible mitigators of atmospheric carbon. And that's because they don't require water or fertilizer treatment. So you don't have to put those environmental loads into either the production system or the land. But they also have the potential to sequester 500 teragrams of carbon a year from the atmosphere, which is much higher than most of our land plant mass. And that's because they're incredibly good at photosynthesis. Their photosynthesis is even more efficient than that found in plants. And lastly, they provide a valuable input and habitat for marine life. And so all of these things make them important not just to us, but to our changing world. Lastly, I'll mention that seaweeds are potentially an incredibly rich source of fuel to start making biofuels from. And when we have to find new ways to make fuel in a sustainable manner, this is actually potentially an incredible way that you could grow biofuel stock that doesn't have a lot of the complications that plant matter does, which we talked about in the first part. And remember, you don't have to water them, you don't have to fertilize them. And potentially, you could fuel a lot of vehicles and or manufacturing with this fuel. So I hope I've convinced you that you should care about seaweeds, not just for their ecological value, but for their scientific value and their value for humanity but also that there's this really interesting and striking relationship between having a cell wall and how you physically need to grow. 
you're encased in a wall. If you want to expand, you have to change that wall. And for us, it's so striking to see that independently of all branches of life, plants and animals might be doing this in an incredibly physically sim similar way by changing the stiffness of their gel matrix. So we still know so little about this amazing branch on the tree of life, but we're hoping to find out more in the future, and I hope you'll tune back in to learn more. I'd like to have some acknowledgments at the end, and that's for both the scientists involved and the funding bodies. So this work was done by an incredibly talented PhD student in my lab, who is now a postdoc with me, Marina Lenardich. And the bioinformatics work is in collaboration with Dr. Sean Kokas and Professor Matteo Pellegrini at UCLA. And without them, we wouldn't be able to do any of our potential gene discovery work. The work has been funded by the DOE. And within UCLA, we have an Institute of Genomics and Proteomics that's sponsored by the DOE, which has also been helping to fund our genome sequencing efforts. So I hope that you enjoyed the talk, and I hope that you believe in the power of seaweeds. And look forward to talking to you again in the future. <laughs>